Hey, Knowles, welcome to Front Row. Knowles, as always, a big shout out to Seminole Boosters, longtime supporter of this program. Thank you to those of you who are Seminole Boosters and supporting Florida State Athletics. We are excited for the new year. Annual fund, Bowden Society, Coaches Club, all almost to goal. So if you haven't stepped up already, I invite you to do so. And again, thanks to, to Seminole Boosters for supporting Front Row Knowles. With that said, and without further ado, here's this week's show. Broadcasting from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Tom Block and Keith Jones with you. We welcome you to Front Row Knowles. KJ, it's palpable. I've been to practice. The hype is legitimate. This team looks like it can play some football, and I can't wait for September, early September, in that game against LSU. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So we've got a lot of activity going on on the field in Tallahassee, and then we got the whole world crumbling over on the left coast. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we haven't had a chance to react to that. Patrick Burnham from the Osceola is going to join us, and we'll talk about what's happening at practice. The big news that came down Tuesday, earlier in the day Tuesday, and Keith and I are recording on Tuesday evening, was that Daryl Jackson didn't get his waiver, and uh, we'll, we'll ask Pat about that. But I, I'll use that as a starting point, Keith. In, in light of Baba Miller losing half a season last year, for $3,000 worth of money that he paid back that had nothing to do with any kind of inducement to get him to come to FSU because FSU wasn't even recruiting him then. So that was six months ago. Now you get this news that a kid, yes, he transferred two years in a row, but he comes back home. He's from this area. His mom is sick and the hardship waiver gets denied or turned down. I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know. It feels like this is the NCAA saying this is the only place we can still have some control, so we're going to use it. Well, the, the NCAA is done. I don't know if it's next year or three years or five years from now. But with everything that's going on with the conferences and the um, candidly, the power that the conferences now weigh, uh, the NCAA is, is a dinosaur that has not turned into oil yet. And I'm done with them. I don't care. He's taking his ball and going home. Understood. No, I'm taking the so ball and anyway. shoving up there. You know what? <laughs> Understood. Understood. All right. We'll, we'll react to how that impacts Florida State on the field in the next segment with uh, with Pat. Of course, we haven't had a chance to talk about the, the conference dominoes. And as we're recording, there's still some talks that the ACC is, is meeting to discuss Cal and Stanford. I, I'm not sure – what the point nothing needs to happen there except for maybe a scheduling arrangement i.e we reincarnate the alliance that never really amounted to anything there's nothing that makes any sense uh and certainly not dollars about adding stanford or cal to the acc and that's before you get into the travel budgets involved well the only thing we don't know because because we don't work in the conference we don't see the contracts we're not privy to uh the television networks uh, particularly espn but the two things that I'm curious about, and I may be so far out in left field that our listeners will do what they normally do when I talk and that's pay, not pay attention. But does adding two schools open up a window of any type of negotiation? And secondly, if you do add those two schools, remember the two schools that the Big Ten just added are coming in at a reduced revenue. 
So if you have Stanford and Cal come in at, do, at reduced revenue, does that assist or help in any way the reconfiguration of who gets what money? Those are two things I just have no answer to because I'm not privy to anything. But those are interesting aspects that may play a small part uh, in anything that happens. Yeah, on page 47 of the contract on the bottom, there's a little note that says, if you add two new schools, the grant of rights is immediately nullified. Do you think that verbiage is in there somewhere, KJ? I would think it would have been found and it would have been discussed uh, if it did exist. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, well, at least have the conversation. I'm not sure what comes out of that. Can I just say, and, and the toothpaste is out of the tube here on this, obviously, because there's no geographic sense or boundaries to any conference anymore, but what they should have done as these schools are bouncing around, just move the football team and leave the Pac-12 in existence with the 12 schools competing in every other sport. So teams over in the Big Ten, you can still pay the bills and fund your programs that way. But now it's your sense to bring your swimming team from Oregon over to Rutgers for a swim meet. Well, I'm thinking that somehow in the grand plan, ACC is going to add Stanford and California, and that will release FSU and Clemson to go to the Big Ten. I just don't know how that works. What are you sipping on right now, KJ? Because I need some <laughs> over here at my location. Understood, friend. <laughs> Understood. Uh, of course, the other big news, it's kind of been a seesaw here of late, and this is after really I mean, if you look at from the second half of last season on, it's been pretty much pointed forward for Florida State. Six-game winning streak, decent recruiting class, really good in the portal again. Uh, and then when you look at the class coming in this year, you get Lester one weekend, you get another huge commit next, last weekend. Uh, things there, there is a true buzz and excitement right now. Now, mixed in around that, you get the Daryl Jackson waiver news and what's the future conference situation for Florida State. So we're kind of spinning and flowing, which means we just need to get to on-field action, Keith, so we can talk about that. And, and am I the only one who thought, you know, once the camp's open, once you get into fall camp, then there'll be no emphasis on conference, and you don't get three days or four days into camp, and the Pac-12 goes from, from 10 to 4 overnight. I, well, is there a dead period in conference realignment like there is in recruiting? I'm confused. Uh, there's not, and we've proven that three summers in a row now. Yep. Uh, and given the August 15th deadline that's coming up, we don't even know if we've reached a dead period or a quiet period until next summer at this point. You you are correct. I do know, Keith, that uh, this Florida State football team is going to be pretty doggone good. Uh, it's it's uh, When you see them, uh, they're professional. They've been in the system. They're experienced. They're mature. And, oh, by the way, you talk about flipping a roster in a couple of years. I mean, there's a lot of NFL guys running around right now wearing Florida State uniforms at practice. You know, the, biggest, guys. the biggest thing that we all have to focus on and be mindful of is not to let our expectations get so far ahead of reality. But this squad is and continues to conduct itself uh, in a way and, and, and the way they compete in practice, the way they encourage each other. They are doing up till now. They are doing all the right things. You still got to win, but everything's pointed in the right direction. Yep, there's no wins or losses coming in the month of August. So right. uh, everything continues to look good. All right, Pat Burnham, our Osceola Insider, joins us next. We'll talk about what's going on on the practice field. That's right after this. 
Front Row Knowles is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. We open up that Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. And say hello to this week's Osceola Insider, Patrick Burnham. Pat, good to see you. I saw you at uh, practice earlier this week, which is my way of pointing out to our audience that I actually was at practice for a brief period. But how are you doing? You've been out there the whole time. It's been hot. <laughs> but listen, there's no better place to be than uh, at a football practice or a football game. And uh, far as I, like everybody else in Tallahassee and around the Florida State football program, um, other than opening day and maybe a big bowl game or college football playoff, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Unfortunately, we're going to start with the news that came down midday on Tuesday, and that's about Daryl Jackson not getting his waiver from the NCAA. And I guess your initial thoughts, A, on the decision, and B, on the impact, and then we'll take it from there. Well, listen, I I believe that when this all started back in December or January, whenever he entered the portal, I feel like both Daryl Jackson and whoever was advising him and Florida State felt really good about getting that waiver, the eligibility waiver passed by the NCAA. And anecdotally, in my 10 years working in college football at South Carolina and South Florida, I don't remember a kid getting a hardship waiver that involved a family member denied. Uh, so now listen, the NCAA did come out after the portal closed or towards the end of when the portal was closing and said they were going to start cracking down on guys that are transferring multiple times and they weren't, it wasn't going to be an automatic green light. But typically when there is a family issue involved, the NCAA usually rules in favor of that waiver. And listen, I think in that situation, the NCAA should be an advocate for the student athlete unless there's something. And listen, we don't all know the details and we don't know what was provided to the NCAA. But unless there was reason to believe, um, I, I just don't understand why you would not help a kid out in that situation. Obviously, he has transferred. He would have been he's transferred twice in three years, you know, back to back. Uh, but I, I think in his situation, based on what I know, and I don't know any of the details, I know about what you guys know that uh, involves a family member, uh, the health of a family member. And it would seem to me uh, that the NCAA would have been. I would have liked to see him pass the waiver now. Uh, certainly uh, impact on the field is it's going to have a huge impact, guys. This is a guy that if he played up to his potential is a first or second round. This guy will play in the NFL. This kid will play in the NFL. And when you have guys like that disappear off your two deep, it's going to have an impact. Now, the great news, you brought in a guy like Braden Fisk. And Braden Fisk has got a chance to be as good uh, as anybody in the uh, conference at uh, defensive tackle. Uh, now, you might have to do some adjusting. Uh, does Josh Farmer now take more reps at nose tackle? Because, you know, they slide these guys back and forth between that nose tackle and three technique position. Uh, but now does, you know, Josh is Josh Farmer and Fabian Lovett at nose tackle and Fisk and Briggs at 
the, the three technique, and then do you get a guy like Malcolm Bray? Uh, one of those guys, Malcolm Bray, Tafasi, uh, somebody's going to have to step up because you would like to rotate. You would like to have five to six guys, ideally, to rotate at between those two positions. But, uh, you know, certainly I don't think you could uh, – I don't want to understate or overstate uh, what his absence will mean, but you're talking about a kid that was Miami's best defensive lineman this year and had a chance to be one of the best defensive linemen in the ACC this year, if not all of college football, and a guy that's got a ton of potential. He's got all the measure, measurables. He's huge. He's fast. He's twitchy. He's explosive. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, if they were factoring him in their plans, this is a setback, but uh, you've got some talent. They were deep here to start, uh, and it, it gives an opportunity for somebody else to step up. But yeah, I, I don't think you can uh, – I think his – you know, listen – we didn't get to see him play. He didn't play for Florida State last year. Uh, he would have made this team better, though. Uh, and uh, he's, he has a chance to be a dominant college football player. And when a kid like that is not no longer available, certainly it's, uh, it's not ideal. I continue to be amazed at the depth of incompetence that the NCAA lowers itself to. An organization that's supposed to be in charge or at least assisting with helping student athletes. You got a kid that grew up 12 miles from campus and you're not going to let him go home and play ball. The hypocrisy, do away with them. I'm done with them. Well, listen, I, they had the, with every move from one conference to another, uh, the NCAA becomes more less relevant by the minute. And uh, it's why we need another organization leading college football for a lot of reasons. But this is one of them, right? Just a short-sighted, heavy-handed decision in order to make – I think. Hey, listen, they may be trying to make – there was another kid at North Carolina, and I'm even less specific about the details there. But I know that a, 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 a reputable writer like Andrea Adelson, who covers the ACC for ESPN, has came out, and I agree with her. They are trying to make examples of these guys. And, uh, you know, I don't know why now, you know, look, we're getting into a lot of things now, right? Like those guys both got NIL, uh, like all players do today. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's a business now. Uh, it always has been, but now it's a legitimate business. Uh, you know, listen, no, 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 I know it's not important. It's not, it's not even on the, it's not even on my radar, but I did think about this today. We're at a point where neither one of those teams, neither one of these two programs is going to get a return on their investment uh, for kids that should be able to play. So anyway, uh, there are a lot of ways to look at this, but I, I, I agree with Keith. I think the NCAA did the kids. This uh, General Jackson wrong. I don't know enough about Tez Williams at uh, North Carolina, but yeah, uh, I'm disappointed yeah, in the would... decision. I would disagree, Pat. I think there's only one way to look at this, and you guys both hit the nail on the head there. So, uh, just a, it's hard to hard to fathom. All right, let's let's move it forward though. So, uh, I mentioned I was at practice on Monday, and when we went into the IPF, literally the first play I saw was Braden Fisk going around two O linemen and being at the quarterback in a nanosecond. And you were standing right there, and I commented to you. I said, "Man, he's fast." And you said, yeah, and explosive. So it feels it's a pretty good time to elaborate a little bit more on what Fisk brings to the table in light of the Daryl Jackson news. Well, listen, I, I, I think that uh, they are probably, as Mike said, I think he's exceeded. He said the other day, yesterday after practice, that he's exceeded their expectations for him uh, and what they thought they were getting. And I went back and watched his Western Michigan film. You knew you were getting a heck of a football player 
but this is a guy uh, like Daryl Jackson is going to have a chance to play a lot of football on Saturday, uh, Sunday after he's done at Florida State. And, uh, yeah, uh, I knew he was a good football player watching his tape from, uh, I believe it was Western Michigan. Uh, but certainly uh, he is a guy, the more you watch him, the more excited you get. I mean, he was a force in the stunt games pickup drill uh, where he got two offensive linemen, blocking the two defensive linemen, and then uh, he caused some problems in 11-on-11 11 11 today. And a guy that's got a chance to really help this defense, uh, you know, we, the, you know, these, the defensive line, uh, this was before Daryl uh, got, was obviously ruled out, but I asked one of the linebackers after press yesterday, what's it like playing in front of those guys? And he goes, listen, they eat up double teams. They open the holes for us to go and make tackles. And uh, so, uh, listen, I think people are going to be uh, very impressed when they see Braden Fisk against LSU and throughout the 2023 season. And, uh, uh, I think he's going to be a guy that uh, people are going to be proud to see where double nickels uh, 55 is a, you know, is a sacred number to me at Florida State. And, uh, you know, I think this guy is the type of guy, uh, once you see him, he's got a high motor, uh, seems very motivated. Uh, we got to speak with him for about five or 10 minutes yesterday after practice and uh, has really good perspective and uh, really can't, he says he cannot wait. Uh, not only for the LSU game, but he mentioned that he cannot wait to run out all against Southern Miss that next weekend and hear that war chant in Dope Campbell Stadium. So listen, uh, they've, uh, listen, I, I, you know, you, when you sit here at preseason, you see Daryl Jackson lined up to Braden Fisk or uh, Braden Fisk lined up to uh, Fabian Lovett. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch that defensive line. And I, I do wish that Daryl Jackson uh, was going to be a part of that. But listen, people are going to really like Braden Fisk once they get to see him play football. What do you see on the offensive side? What's your early takeaways early in camp on the offensive side? Uh, it could be hard to stop. <laughs> there are a lot of good skill players going around. And, uh, you know, you're loaded at wide receiver. You've you know, you've got three major college tight ends and Jaheim Bell, Kyle Morlock, and obviously Mark Easton Douglas. Uh, and, you know, obviously you got uh, a couple other kids that have played some football there, but the wide receiver room is very deep. Uh, you know, listen, uh, th there was a play uh, a couple of days ago where you had Johnny Wilson and Keon uh, Coleman line up on the same side and I think there was one other, I think they had, there was trips to one side of the field and they were two of the three trips and, you know, pick your poison. Uh, if you want to move coverage over to where they are, you're going to set up a disadvantage on the other side of the field or advantage on the other side of the field against opposing defenses, one in real routes to the weak side. I mean, so listen, uh, the offense has, uh, and listen, we all know that Mike is very good form at formationally and uh, through motion and using the same personnel in different uh, formations of taking advantage of uh, opposing defenses and putting them in stressful situations. And I think that's exactly what we'll see. Jordan looks really good. Uh, we were talking about this the other day. Uh, the running back room is deep. You know, you've got Trey, you've got Rodney Hill, and uh, C.J. Campbell, and Josiah Holmes. And, I mean, it's it's uh, an LT, of course, Lawrence Ophelia, and, you know, 
Keziah Holmes had a heck of a day at practice today. Uh, and, you know, he's arguably third or fourth on the depth chart. Uh, I don't know their depth chart. We're not supposed to talk about a depth chart, but uh, I know that Trey Bess is going to be the starter. So he's not number one. I mean, I don't, I feel pretty good going out on a limb on that. Uh, but listen, uh, they've got, and, you know, listen, the offensive line, Jeremiah Byers has been, uh, you know, he's got beat a few times in one on pass pro and two on two pass pro, but, uh, man, he's looking really good. Bless Harris is looking really good. Uh, Darius had a good day in pass pro today. Uh, they opened up some nice holes, uh, for CJ Campbell and Keziah Holmes and team today. Uh, I think it's got a chance to be really explosive offense. And I think, uh, you know, I think that talent was the way Mike calls a game. Uh, I think it's going to be scary for some defensive coordinators that certainly has not disappointed. There's no question that this is going to be a big play offense. But I think the key question, Pat, and we'll hit this in our next segment, is can they make the smaller plays? And I'll expound upon that when we come back on Front Row Knowles. Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. Back on Front Row Knowles with Pat Burnham, Tom Block, and Keith Jones here. All right, it's going to be a big play offense, Pat. But, but what we've seen, especially the last couple of years, Florida State hasn't had the horses up front. And so you're just think about the LSU game last year where FSU, but right before half, it's fourth and whatever at the two, maybe fourth and two, fourth and three. And you're throwing a fade to Micah Pittman. Later in the game, you're running a pitch that gets funked. That game didn't have to come down to a kick. So the point I'm making is, is this a team that can get you third and one, that can get you fourth and goal from the half yard line when Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman and Jaheim Bell aren't the answer, are the guys up front good enough to be the answer? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Now, we don't get to see goal line 11 on 11, right? So we don't get to see short yardage 11 on 11 where they're tackling. And as you guys both know, it's different when it's tag off or thud uh, in those short yardage and goal line situations. I will say this. I do believe definitively that this is the best offensive line that Florida State has had in the last four years for sure and probably since about 2016 if i'm uh being honest and uh you know listen bless harris has gotten bigger uh jeremiah byers is a could be he can pass block he can run block you know uh do we know demetri emmanuel is a plugger and a guy that is uh, very effective at run blocking so yes i i, I do listen it's good you know you're not going to make them all the time as we know i mean uh but do I think they're going to be better in short yarder situations this year than last year? I absolutely do. I wonder sometimes, though, guys, your play caller doesn't like running a fullback or a tailback up the middle in short yardage. I, I sometimes wonder if, if some of the reason that that short yardage is not converted is because Mike is always wide open. He, he doesn't take the foot off the accelerator. Uh, I, I don't know how you would quantitatively do that or, or uh, evaluate that, but it's just amazing to me how how aggressive he is in his play calling. Well, listen, you got to, I think at some point, you know, listen, at the longer Alex Atkins is offensive coordinator, right, the more influence he's going to have on Mike. And he's a former offensive lineman himself. So, you know, he's got, you know, there's nothing offensive linemen, whether they're playing or coaching, love to do more than run the ball. 
it's fun when you start meeting people like that. But yeah, so I think I think that you will start to see more of Alex's influence uh, on the offense as he gains more experience in that role. Uh, and he and Mike developed the same kind of chemistry that he had with Kenny Dillingham because they were very tight and worked together for a long time. So uh, yeah, you know, I, I think you're referencing the NC State game uh, with the throw to Pittman and I, I think I think some of that had to do with the struggles they were having in the kicking game at that time. And um, I'm with you. I might have taken a different tack, but it's never here nor it's neither here nor there at this point. But yeah, listen, uh, I, I think that uh, I think they'll be better on the offensive line. I think you will see Mike and Alex uh, in those short shorter situations. Maybe uh, go back to I guess more old school football, uh, Keith and. Uh, you know, listen, they, they're going to be able to stretch some people out uh, with the, the guys they have on the outside, and that should open up some more opportunities for some inside power runs, I would think. Keith, one of the things, and, and Pat, you've been there every day, so you've had time to, to work through the roster, but in the little time I spent there, I laughed and thought, man, they got so many weapons now, I, I forgot to look at Destin Hill. You know, I'm over here looking at Keon Coleman, and I'm looking at Johnny Wilson. I drove home and I'm like, I didn't even focus on Destin Hill at all or Jaheim Bell. Um, you know, I've heard there's been a lot of buzz. First of all, on Keon Coleman, uh, KJ, if you haven't been around him, you just take a look at him and you go, man, that guy's got a he's got a professional frame on him. Yes, he does. That's the first time I saw him. I said his lower body is NFL lower body. I mean, he he looks the part. Yeah, I mean, you read about these guys, and then you go stand there, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's an that's a guy who's going to play on Sundays right there. And, and, uh, by and the he's way, even he more twitchy than I thought he was. You know, I thought he might yeah. be a straight-ahead, go-route guy, but he's got the ability to make some people miss and uh, a little bit shiftier with the ball than I thought he was, was going to be. Yeah, and I took it as a good sign, Keith. They were doing a drill. I don't know. It was, uh, they were sort of throwing fades, I guess. Uh, this is without DBs, but intentionally throwing behind the receiver so that they had to – turn around this way to make the catch and uh, and Coleman just sticks one hand up and grabs it right like piece of cake I mean it was like it was a little mini football but Norvell comes over and is screaming at him because in his opinion he was a little hand there and get all the way around to catch it with yeah both he wants yeah but the big the bigger point being and I know he did it to the other receivers too but uh you could kind of tell that Mike's riding him a little hard because he knows what knows what he has there if that makes sense Pat yeah, well, I think Mike has always been consistent that he wants two hands on that football. I will give him that. He's a former receiver, a pretty good one in his own right. So, uh, yeah, he, he definitely emphasizes two hands on the ball. But you mentioned a guy making a great one-handed catch in body control. Uh, there was a uh, catch by Marcus and Douglas, I think, in team on Saturday. He's running down the seam. He's about 25 yards down the field. He has to reach out and with one hand as his body. This is a big body, right? Like, He's got unbelievable body control for a man his size. And I, in, in my opinion, it's been the catch of camp, but he le leaps up in the air, turns his body back towards the ball in the air, comes down with it with one hand. And, uh, and you know, we don't talk about him enough because we talk about Gene Bell and Kyle Morlock all the time. But that kid's working hard to, you know, fight for his right to play. And uh, he, he's made some impressive plays. So you're right, they got their skill all over the place. And, you know, I was writing down names who we're going to talk about. Uh, I got to write down some of the new names and, you know, I, you know, I forgot about some of the guys I want to talk about because I, as I started going down through the roster, you look at a 
Conrad Hussey, the true freshman, and Edwin Joseph, who have really popped. I mean, those guys are going to have a chance to play a lot of football at Florida State. They're extremely fast, uh, twitchy guys. And they uh, listen, uh, I saw Edwin Joseph, the guy was going to score, but Edwin Joseph sprints. Uh, it was a run down the far sideline from him. And the guy was going to score. There's no doubt. But all you see is this guy coming shot out of a cannon from the other side of the field. And it's, it's Edwin Joseph. And it caught my attention. Every time I go to practice now, I'm like, I want to see what Edwin Joseph does today. So they've got some, they've got some talented kids. There's no doubt. And, uh, you know, they got more talent than I can remember, at least in the five years that we've been doing this as the revamped Osceola online. So Pat, what you're telling me is we got a legitimate, According to the coaches' poll, a legitimate, a legitimate five versus eight coming up in Orlando and in, uh, in the uh, opening game of the FSU season. Well, listen, I, I certainly think that Florida State is uh, going to be has a chance to be really, really good. I, I think they've got a talented football team. Uh, you know, LSU's got a talented football team. It should be a, a great game. It's going to give both teams a chance to see exactly who they are. Uh, as opposed to who they think they are, uh, and they're almost—they're almost playing with house money, right? I mean, you know, both teams—if they take care of business in their conference, it really doesn't uh, matter what happens in this game until you get to maybe a college football playoff scenario of some sort. But both of them obviously would have to win their the conference and the conference championship to for that to become a factor. But uh, yeah, listen, uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating game. I think they're, uh, I think you're probably going to see both teams take some chances, uh, but uh, you know, it's going to, it's going to be fun to watch a Jared verse go against a Will Campbell. It's going to be fun to watch uh, Jeremiah Byers go up against uh, golly. I can't remember the big old defensive tackle that's coming back from in. That was the number one rated recruit in America. Uh, he's back. I know that Brian Kelly is really excited about uh, Mason, Mason. I uh, can't remember. I think it's Mason Smith. But anyway, he's, you know, one of the best, uh, most highly regarded defensive tackles to come out of high school football in a couple of years. And then, you know, listen to watch those guys uh, drop, try to just watching, Harold Perkins and Jared Verse go against the offensive lines on both teams. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Oh, by the way, they have a quarterback as well. Of some, oh, some yeah, little bit of note. And both of them have pretty damn good quarterbacks. <laughs> <laughs> that both could find themselves in the Heisman race if their teams perform well enough behind them. One name uh, or, or one other guy I was just looking back at my notes that uh, stood out a little bit to me and was really more because I saw him coaching up some, to some of the young DBs. So you mentioned the young DBs. I was going to go there next. I, I do feel better about the safety position watching who they had there. And that includes the the freshman, uh, what's his name, Ashland, that they brought in. He played well. But Ashland the name Barker, I was going to mention yeah. was, yeah, uh, he's Keith, he's a 6'3 guy that can move too at safety. And But Kevin Knowles is who I was going to ask you about. And I, I was impressed. He, he looks like he's gotten a little bit bigger. But I saw him uh, just, you know, taking the basically uh, apprenticing the younger guys, if you will, and really doing a nice job there in that role too. Yeah, listen, I, he's played a lot of football for a guy that's a true junior, right? I mean, he's, he was forced into action as a true freshman, uh, as some of the, as a lot of these kids have. And, you know, we were talking to Shaheem Brown. Shaheem's not been around forever either. And, you know, he's one of the leaders in that at the safety position. He's a redshirt sophomore going to his third season here. And he, he and uh, Kevin are the leaders of the of those of those two positions. You got true, a lot of true freshmen, redshirt freshmen behind them, and they, so they've had to grow up a little bit quicker, probably than some players uh, that are you know that came in after them. Uh, and listen, this is a you know the one thing that I really like about this team, and we've talked about it as Osceola staff. 
they want to see each other get better. You see players playing the same positions help each other. You see offensive linemen tell defensive linemen how to defeat that block and defensive linemen uh, telling offensive linemen, you know, how to deal with that move. I mean, you know, we said it last year. Uh, there's this team seems like it likes to, to compete against each other and pull for each other at the same time. And as Keith will tell you that lot, not all locker rooms are like that. Uh, and, you know, there's, and I think that we talked about it the other night after uh, the kid from KJ bold, uh, committed to Florida State, that, fam, you know, we talk a lot about family, you know, you heard the word family and culture and all those things, every college football coach talks about it, but I think you're starting to see that family environment trickle down and affect the recruiting because, you know, these kids talk to these recruits, right? I mean, uh, and so there's that family, we've heard all these recruits that have committed to Florida State talk about the family environment. So, you know, listen, it certainly shows itself on the practice field uh, where they seem to want to love to compete against each other and help each other. And I think we've seen it trickle down and their success in the on recruiting trail as well. Pat Burnham, our Osceola insider, uh, safe travels to Jacksonville where the team will be on Thursday and Friday and you'll be there uh, and, and the Osceola will have uh, great coverage as always. We appreciate it. Yeah, guys, look forward to seeing you guys on a more regular basis now that it's August. And uh, I know that you guys got to get Bob and Kurt and Jerry on, but uh, I guess I'll see you here in the next couple of weeks. Hey, don't tell anybody, right, you're good. our favorite. He says that every week, whether it's Kurt or Bob or Jerry. I know. I figured out. I figured out his game already. I figured out his game already. All, All right. More front row Knowles right after this. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the Front Row Knowles podcast and follow at Front Row Knowles on Twitter. Now back to at underscore Tom Block and Twitterless Keith Jones. Yes, you heard us right in the Prime Meridian Bank Studios. Back on Front Row Knowles a few minutes before we finish up. KJ, uh, you mentioned at the top, the expectations are the thing. And I, I say this all the time, Keith. Last year, that last year's season was so enjoyable because everything felt like gravy. Nobody expected FSU to be 10 and 3 and have that kind of success. So you go there every week and you're your mouth's kind of hanging open. You're thinking, wow, this team is just so much better than I expected. We've we've painted the opposite picture this year. And even if Florida State, well, first of all, if Florida State goes 10-2 and two and loses to LSU and Clemson, no FSU fan's going to be happy, right? But even if they score 40 points a game, like Pat said, if you win a game 40-24, to 24, people are going to be nitpicking what in the world's going on. And so it's just different when the expectations are where they are. That said, the expectations are where they are because of what Mike Norvell and his staff have put on the, on the roster and because of the acumen they have as coaches. So I'd rather be there than the other side, but, but it is definitely different. There are, there are negatives associated with both. Uh, that Welcome to life. Uh, two things jump out at me. Number one, it's one thing for your fan base to have an expectation. But when that translates into what, at least at the conference level, uh, your, your peers are saying about you. And I know Florida State finished second. You know, the, the vote was that, Clemson was expected to win the ACC, but the difference between one and two was really close compared to a difference between one and two last year, of which FSU was not number two. The second part of it, it is the national media and particularly the national coaches. You know, the coaches poll just came out. FSU's at number eight, LSU's at number five. 
you know, the coaches don't spend a lot of time looking at competitors and particularly looking at teams uh, that are not in their conference or that, that are not on their schedule. But coaches understand what is correct and appropriate hype versus what is just people wishing things. Does that make sense? So Florida State has now regained the respect of the coaches in the, in, in the country. Um, those two things are very encouraging to me. It's real easy for you and I to get excited and go, whoop, whoop, you know, FSU is going to win everything. But when everybody else is beginning to pay attention to it, there's legit, there's a beginning of legitimacy. You said the word beginning, because I would just point out, and, and we know this, that when you're closer to it, you have a better, your fingers on the pulse. So the end of the Jimbo era, I think most of us knew that things might be turned in the wrong direction. And and now, and yet the national media, they lag a season or a year. They don't, and then you get the questions, what in the world happened? Well, it didn't happen yesterday. It happened over the last two or three years. And the answer is the same now. So some of the, uh, not surprising that Clemson was picked first, but maybe a little more surprising to me that in the preseason poll that FSU was eighth and not a little higher because back in the spring and when FSU was in home runs in the portal, some of the uh, the way too early top 25s had FSU sitting at number five or so. And it's almost as if they they had to balance it and step back and say, wait a minute, I think I'm, I'm valuing FSU a little too much right now. They got to show me first, which is fair and reasonable. But I think those of us closer look at it and go, yeah, this this might not be play for the championship, but it's definitely a lot better than what Florida State's been in a decade. Well, and I think I think Coach Norvell and his staff have done and continue to do a good job in the conversations we're not privy to, reminding these kids, you know, it, it's great to have some accolades, but it really doesn't matter what the media is saying. It really doesn't matter what the polls are saying. If you go out and do your job the way we know you can do your job, all these other things will take care of themselves. I can remember Coach Bowden actually in a pra after practice saying, men, I'm going to tell the media this. There's no way we can beat them. There's so much more experience than we are. There's so much bigger and faster. It'll take a miracle for us to do thus and so. And Coach Bowden would look at us and say, I don't believe that. I'm just going to tell them that. So you don't believe it. And, and obviously that's 40, 45 years ago, but the concept's the same. Um, what Mike and the staff are telling these kids are the things that apparently the kids are paying attention to. Keith, as you're talking, I just looked at my phone because I got an alert from The Athletic, and I think they're the first to report this. But the ACC is apparently also talking about adding SMU. So now the conversation has moved to Stanford, Cal, and SMU, which would get the league to 17 schools. And if we could just get Notre Dame and then divide, you know, start with a bigger number, we'd get a few more coins there to, to chase that revenue gap. Tommy, I, I, I mentioned this, and, and maybe our listeners will remember or not, but you will. I, I didn't see the Texas and Oklahoma thing happening until it happened. I certainly didn't see the USC-UCLA thing happening until it happened. I didn't foresee any of this. I thought we were a year away at the earliest, but the implosion of the Pac-12, evidently, uh, whether it's panicked, whether it's justified or anything else in between has just set off some dominoes that, that it, 
nothing surprises me anymore. Who, who knows where it's going to end? You know, I, I don't, I'm done holding out that little bit of hope that uh, maybe, maybe Notre Dame would join the ACC. I don't think that's, that's, well, who knows? But, but refresh my memory, and I'm not looking at it right now. If Notre Dame joins a conference between now and 2036, it has to be the ACC, right? In other words, they can't join the Big Ten, even if the Big, even if they wanted to tomorrow. At the very least, they'd have to pay $120 million to get out of the AC, the, the, the conference. And I don't know, maybe they'd have to litigate the grant of rights, too. In other words, FSU's barking may be a factor for Notre Dame as well. Could be. Could be. Again, we're not privy to all those documents and that type of thing. But I remember in the back of my mind, which is a very, very recessed place these days, uh, something along that lines. That, it, that if, if Notre Dame joins a conference, it either has to be the ACC are there some form of a financial thing? Yeah, and that's what I don't recall. So there may be a dollar figure associated on it. Anyway, stay tuned to uh, as college football implodes or explodes or, or pick your your term there. Keith, uh, we will do this again next week. What's quick thought, by the way, on the team going to Jacksonville for two days worth of practice, good, bad, and different? I love it. I love it. it. It gives you a different environment. It breaks up the routine, uh, gets, you, gets you accustomed to traveling. Because uh, for these freshmen, you know, that's that's never occurred to them. Any of, the, any of them that make the travel squad. Uh, plus, it gives your fan base to whatever degree Mike gives them access. You know, all the folks in Jacksonville can come out and watch practice for a little while. Exactly. All right. We're out of time. We will do this again next week. Thanks to Pat Burnham from the Osceola. Pete, good to catch up as always. We'll do it again next week. Thanks to you, the listener. And until then, thanks as always for listening to Front Row Knowles.